As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks so much for riding out the break with us. I had a once-in-a-lifetime road trip with my family, including my six-year-old son throughout the desert southwest. It was his spring break. Those of you who follow us on Instagram may have seen some pictures from it. Or was it? Or was it just a group of actors that Scott had hired to pose as his family? You know, that's a funny joke, but I do want to say (laughs) – I do, or maybe it's not. But I do want to say, for our listeners who seem to be getting confused, I am the guy with the beard. And the higher, slightly higher pitched voice. Yes, I talk like a girl. No, but it fits you. <laughs> if, you knew, if you if you see us in person, uh, maybe we'll, one day we'll have a uh, fan get together. It fits. It fits. I don't know my if mine fits because obviously they think the bigger guy has the the slightly deeper voice. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, it's the opposite. So whatever you're picturing in your head, it's the opposite. Forest voice is way okay. better than mine. <laughs> anyway, this yeah. trip was nothing shy of epic. I want to give a special shout out to Joshua Taylor of Cottonwood, Arizona who gave me the VIP treatment at one of the places we stayed, uh, which was – it was pretty crazy because he had heard us talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know, that I was going to take this trip on the right. on part one of the Summerton Man. And then lo and behold, my name turned up on his computer screen. He was like, I'm not a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that must have been weird for him and as well as us yeah, because was, it was like, what? what? Somebody recognized you? Yeah, That's we, a yeah. little strange. He, he actually couldn't – he said he couldn't email me because of the yeah. protocols at the hotel, but then he – Yeah, I'm sure there's me. a few. Like, yeah. Please don't bother the guests <laughs> that you may recognize. Right, name. but then yeah. he like – he reached out to me on Facebook and he was like, are, are you staying at, at here? And I was like, yeah. And it, you know what? It was awesome. Yeah. When we got there, it was a bit like plate of chocolate-covered strawberries. Okay. Like, oh, you know, good. Because he really it, hooked me up. But what I will say, though, you, you know, we're in a in a mid level of fame, I guess, because we're just famous enough that he recognized your name. Oddly, I got to yeah. say, what a, what a weird coincidence. Yeah. But not so famous that he's he felt bad about bothering us. Which, right. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were really famous. Like, oh no, no, don't don't bother them. That that you know, we can't afford it no, to do that. No, yeah. he's a super nice guy. Actually, yeah. I gave him a hat. So no, that's very cool. No, no, we got to say it's very very cool that uh, he recognized us in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so thank you, Josh. You know what you did. Oh, no. <laughs> I stop. Well, that sounds even more sinister. Oh no, it's good. Mysterious. Okay. And by the way, I want to say this show has been particularly research heavy and wouldn't have been possible without Tess Feifel and the Astonishing Research Corps as well as the talents of our new volunteer transcriptionist, Sarah Bouvier. Yes, Sarah, without your transcripts, well, one, we'd be here till six in the morning. Uh, But really, it's helped so much with this particular episode and what we're doing right this minute because it allows us to focus, really, on the structure of the story. Thank you. So, part one was really just kind of a teaser. It You know, we wanted to give you the broad overview of the story so you knew all the important points of it. But now it's time to dig much, much deeper down into the pasty for the meaty bits.
Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Yes, this man has someone to love him. He is known only to God. Captain E.J. Webb of the Salvation Army at the Somerton Man's Funeral, as cited in Gerald Feltus's book, The Unknown Man. Join us tonight for an in-depth interview with Professor Derek Abbott, one of the current investigative experts of the Somerton Man case. Sometimes we sit down to an episode of the show and we think, oh, this won't take too long. Yeah, sometimes that uh, works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Mo- <laughs> mostly it doesn't. So, yeah. Tonight's show ran a little long, so we're breaking it into two parts. The main reason we're doing this is so we can get the first part posted sooner for you, and give me just a little extra time to get the second part edited and mixed. On the plus side, the second part of this episode is already in the can, so we're not talking about our normal two-week wait for it here. Scott just needs time to get it polished up. I'm thinking one week at the most. Following that and our normal two-week window... We'll post the final part on the Somerton Man, which, like Oak Island and Amelia Earhart were, will be primarily about the theories surrounding the case. There's a lot of ways for you guys to get involved in helping investigators get to the bottom of the many unanswered questions that emanate from this case. So if you're listening in your car, or on the subway, or on your jog, or on horseback on the beach, save this series because we'll be letting you know ways you guys can help get this mystery closer to being solved. And keep an eye on our website... Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon pages for ways to get involved. So in part one of this series, we covered the discovery of the Somerton man's body, and we scratched the surface of the initial and ongoing investigation. I want to point out that we're going to be using a little shorthand tonight for the Somerton man. You'll often be hearing us refer to him simply as TSM. Okay, so you want to talk about the uh, the 110-year-old man? Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. You know, I, now, you know what, I, I, just to say for the record, yeah. it doesn't really bother me that much, but uh, it might, you know, some people who are sticklers might see a point. Well, a few people asked about it. I, I may have errantly stated in part one of this series that Alfred Boxall, the man who also had a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which was inscribed by the nurse, Jessica Joe Thompson, was still alive. Boxall actually passed away August 17th, 1995, and he was born in 1906, so I wasn't off by that much. I mean, you know, that's 22 years. And he would have had to have been 110 years old, but (laughs) we'll say it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. That's a major theme with me throughout our entire show. Things can seem very unlikely, but is it impossible? It, in fact, Google Old Tom Parr on uh, Wikipedia yeah, or something. Yeah, 152, right? Something like that, <laughs> reportedly. I mean, of course, this was, uh, yes, the 17th century when he passed away and was born in the late in the, in the late 1400s, I believe. That may be all just a, a – well, no, they, he did exist. He was a real guy. He'd been painted by some of the f- most famous uh, portrait painters of the time. What I'm saying, though, is Alfred Boxall, not likely, not impossible. The thing is for me, actually, I bury myself in this research so much – that I actually lose track of the time period that we're researching versus present day. And that's why I screwed that up about Alfred Boxall. I, for me, it's like I'm reading from dawn to dusk every waking moment and trying to cull it into an outline for us and get our ducks in a row. And it's like I'm living in that time period. And so to me, a lot of these people are alive. (laughs) Oh, well, no, of course. And, uh, you know, it is different from an old historical story. This one is not that long ago. No. It really didn't bother me at all much because a few of these people, as we did say correctly, are still alive. Uh, Peter Lawson's alive, actually. Yeah. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Right. 
Right. The couple that saw a possible TSM on the beach, uh, a te- they were teenagers at the time out for a stroll. So that's right. That's the thing. Some of these folks are alive. But uh, Vauxhall but, is not. Well, <laughs> he's not. But uh, some of the possible ancestors of this mysterious man. Possible. Possible. Uh, his lineage may still have been kept alive. So, yeah, I, there's yeah, no reason. Uh, it was just a mis- misfire. Speaking. Misspeaking. Miss, let's just go. It with was misspoken. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we put a lot of thought into how to structure this series, and particularly this episode. You know, I would love to have a room full of producers and post-production people to help us out, but when it comes to putting the shows together, Force and I are pretty much on our own, with the exception of a great deal of help that we've had on a few episodes recently from an editor friend, John Boland. Thank you so much, John, for your cut downs on the interviews and our shows. They have saved me hours of work. So we talked about it, and it seemed to us that we had a few ways to assemble the raw materials we have for you today. And in our final part of the series, we will be coming at you full force with all the primary theories surrounding the case. It seemed to me, since interviews are still on the newest side for us, that the best thing for us to do was to explain exactly how we're going to play the show out. Too right. Was that's, that? a, that's an Australian expression, nice. I do believe. Yeah, so that's yeah. your okay. character for now. Hey, somebody approved. We had a, okay. we had a terrific <laughs> fan out there who said she approved of uh, what you did not. Be warned, folks. Yeah. Crocodile. No, that's it. No, no, that's waiting in the wings. I'm sticking to my promise. Actually, that wasn't even that heavily inflected. No, there you go. But anyway. I'm going to let it go. Yes. Anyway. Okay. I interviewed Professor Derek Abbott for over three hours about all of his experiences with the case. And that interview has been cut down significantly. And part of it involves him relaying the story of how the Somerton Man was found. We're going to keep that mostly to a brief recap here at the top and then share with you the observations that Professor Abbott made that are new information with regard to the discovery of the body. Scott's interview with Professor Abbott went on to cover a lot more ground, though, so we're going to be setting that up for you and cutting back to his interview whenever we need to, and we'll probably venture off on a tangent or two regarding such things as the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam and clandestine meetings at hotels. Out of uh, all the things I've read and the proposed theories and uh, general lines of research, the one I'm kind of aligning to are those of Professor Derek Abbott. Yeah, I find his I find the way he approaches everything is very rational and yes. and as dispassionate as you can be. Obviously, everyone has an agenda and he'd be the first to tell you that as well. You there there you have your own confirmation bias that you can't fight. But he does a really good job, as good a job as I think you and I try to do when yeah. we're approaching a case like this. Look, you're going to form opinions, but I think his calm reasoning, you know what I'm saying? He doesn't go way off the deep end. He's pretty rational about everything and there's a lot of common sense. So that's always a great place to start for me. You I can agree. Get, you can get crazy later. Yeah. You know, but I think to Which start off... people do. Plenty well, people oh, do. yes. Well, it's like, in, look, it's it's like Oak Island. It's uh, probably not so much uh, with Dyatlov Pass, but people have their theories. If, especially Amelia Earhart. There, there you go. Those three theories were all diametrically opposed. Yeah, so... Aliens. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, no, but Aliens. seriously, though, I think... Uh, when when you uh, read his articles and the things that he's collected and just the way he presents them and just very level-headed, I would say. I also want to say he is there. He teaches at the University of Adelaide, which is just nine miles from where the Somerton Man was found. He first took an interest in this case in 1995, but as you're going to hear, he got real serious about it yeah. in 2007 and has been ever since. Right. And he's actually interviewed a lot of the people that were still alive to interview. 
Hand, yeah, right. hand gone through a lot of documents personally, which you'll hear about later. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So I do want to emphasize that he is as far from us in Los Angeles as you can be. Like if he, <laughs> if he went outside of his office and walked 10 more feet, he'd be on his way back here. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's an 18-hour yeah. time difference. We did our interview by Skype. Uh, we're, we're working on ways to improve our interview technology. This is going to be pretty clear, but – uh, just bear with us if you if it gets a little crunchy here and there. But for the most part, I think you're going to have no problem with it. Okay, so let's get to know Professor Abbott. I'm a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Adelaide in Australia. I do research on a number of different topics centering around things to do with biomedical engineering, complex systems, probability theory, and things to do with cryptography and forensics come into that. And so this is that part of that interest that connects to this case. Okay, the scene is 1948, Adelaide, Australia. A guy is found dead on the beach, December the 1st, 1948. The body is dry. He's on dry sand. There's no disturbance in the sand. There's not a scratch on his body. He looks athletically fit, smartly dressed in a suit. And the mystery is that to this day, we don't know this guy's name and we don't know how he even died. And why does such a a good fit looking guy suddenly die on the beach in the middle of nowhere? So this is a considerable unparalleled mystery. So what do we know about what happened and what happened the day before and the day after? Well, witnesses forward, one witness who worked in a local jewelry shop said he was walking on the beach with his wife the night before and saw this guy sitting up against a retaining wall along the side of the beach. And the guy lifted up one of his arms and flopped it down. It was actually his right arm. And they really thought nothing of it. They just kept walking. And his wife made some offhand comment that hey, maybe this is some drunk guy. Now, that was John Lyons, right, Scott? Yeah, and as we covered in part one, he was the jeweler who was walking on the beach with his wife. He later came back the next morning for a swim and saw TSM. Not too long after that, the second set of witnesses, a couple came along. And from the position they were at, which was up above the seawall that was there at the time, they really couldn't see all of TSM's body. Right. And you kind of have to picture what it was like at the time. Now, you know that old black and white newspaper photo with the X on it on the beach where yes. it was? Yeah, which everyone's oh. seen. Anyone who's yeah. looked at this case has seen it. Anyway. Of course. It's it's the famous one, but that's what it was. So there is a low, I think, concrete, kind of smooth concrete uh, seawall, maybe a few feet high, maybe a meter, which we believe his head and neck and maybe the top of his shoulders was resting against. The rest of his body is prone in the sand laid out in front of him. And above this uh, smooth concrete portion, there's rocks and dirt, probably like 45 degrees, and that leads up to the road. And there's also a staircase nearby, and that leads kind of up to where the crippled children's home was, as it was known at the time. Now, it looks totally different today. There's condos there and really nice apartments. Actually, it's a very lovely area. But we have uh, modern-day photos, current photos. Yeah, that's true. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to give a great big thank you to Benjamin Abercrombie, who lives in Adelaide. And actually, he was not a listener of the show. I hope he will be now. (laughs) Yeah. But he was somebody that my wife knew. And 
we contacted him and he was a photographer and he went out and took a list that Professor Abbott helped me come up with and took a bunch of modern day pictures. So we have pictures that were taken actually just in the past couple of weeks Wow! of most of the locations pertinent to this case and you can find them at our website. Thank you, Benjamin. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I think he's got uh, Joe Thompson's house and the kind of the pauper's grave or the very uh, humble grave where he's laid to rest currently. Yes. Yeah, some really great additions. And in any case, so picture that. This couple, this teenage couple, is sitting on a bench behind the railing where this rock escarpment is. There's a railing there. They're sitting on the bench. They can't see him totally, but they can see his legs, right? Yeah, and I actually asked Professor Abbott about that. Take a listen. A very young couple sat down on a wooden bench not very far from the body and couldn't completely see the body. Could just see a pair of legs sticking out from behind a set of wooden stairs that go up from the beach. And the couple thought they saw one of the legs move during the course of their time they were just sitting there. There was a disagreement uh, between them. I think the lady said she didn't see anything, but the guy said, yeah, he's pretty sure he saw one of the legs move. And so when they left, that was basically the end of it. Their testimony is quite interesting because that couple is still alive today because they were quite young at the time. They were just teenagers. Are they still together? Uh, yeah, and they're still happily married. Oh, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I've interviewed them. They're, yeah, they're a nice couple. And their testimony is interesting because these are alive people who've actually seen the body because there's not many people like that left anymore. And they confirmed that... These were brown trousers that uh, they saw on the legs and a brown pair of shoes. And they confirmed that it was really still night and the mosquitoes were out. So that tells you something that's an important point, that there's no kind of big disturbance or wind or any storm. It's an extremely still night. So if the guy had a few possessions around him, you wouldn't expect those to be blown away. And he didn't, in fact. So it tells you there was there was no extraneous things that have accidentally gone missing. If they have gone missing, it's deliberate. And the point about him wearing brown, I think, is reasonably important because, you know, some people say, well, how do we know the guy found the next morning is the same guy? So the question is, how many guys do you see lying on exactly the same spot in a suit on the exact same spot at the beach and wearing the same color trousers the next day? It's more likely that it's the same guy than it's not. Do you see what I mean? Okay, so that really sets up the, uh, the mystery here. It's most likely the same guy seen the night before. There's not a lot of disturbance in the sand. And what I love about this is that, yes, this sets up the mystery to a T, because it's not totally deserted, and the, it's not like there's zero clues. There are some people there, just a few, and there are a few clues. And it's all mysterious. It adds to the mystery, you know what I'm saying? Like, if, if there was zero clues, if he was, like, just naked and, and with nothing to go on, no one saw him, it's totally out in the middle of nowhere, well, that's not so much of a mystery. Well, I guess how he got there is, but there's just enough to fuel this thing. So there's a few people that saw him. But on the other hand, not so many people, like if this was really crowded, it's like that old story of the guy that dies on the subway and rides around for a couple of days because there's so many people, it's so crowded, nobody notices him. So he's there, a few people notice him, 
it's obvious to us anyway that it is the same man seen the night before. I agree. And here's the other thing I want to say about this interview and the multitude of interviews that Professor Abbott has done. This guy has done a ton of work on this case, more than most people. However, to quote Yoda, there is another. (laughs) Wait, are you sure he didn't say another there is? I can't know. I can't do Yoda. Please do it. No, no, no. Are you kidding? No. Yeah. No. Uh, Another there is. No, you (laughs) don't. I can do Frank Oz, but I'm not. It, boy, you're yeah. so you're That's so. That's not what he said, by the way. If yeah. you want all of the Star Wars fans that were ever born coming, That's down I'm not on doing us, it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, no. It, it was there yeah. is another. Okay, and the the other that I want to talk about is Jerry Feltus, who yeah. we mentioned in part one. Jerry is a retired South Australian police force detective with 40 years of experience. He grew up in Somerton, and he's been exposed to the case pretty much his entire life. He actually remembered being a kid and walking down the beach uh, with his, I think, his classmates, and people were talking about it, but they didn't have a whole lot of details. So, And I, I've been in touch with Feltus. I actually ordered his book, which he sent graciously all the way from Australia. The only way to get it is from his website, which we have a link to. Yeah, uh, it's It's a pretty fascinating book. It's super entertaining. He has a lot of interesting information in it. Uh, There's a little bit of a blend between historical like speculation mixed with cold hard facts. Right. Well, he's tried to make it very readable, I think, right? And that's what you found is that it's entertaining. Yes. It's pretty fascinating. And I I think if you're a fan of the case, it's worth picking up. And he had said that he was willing to talk to us, but he also said he was having some pretty serious internet problems. And I emailed him to ask him if he wanted to get on the phone with us. And I haven't heard back from him. That was a few weeks ago. Yeah. Now, where were we? Did Abbott have any Anything to say about the two guys on the horses that John, or I guess he goes by Jack Lyons, right? Yeah, that was that's what Abbott said he went by. Jack, okay, Jack Lyons. Yeah, so Jack Lyons. Did he have anything to say about them the next morning? Because Jack Lyons went for a swim. He comes out of the water, I believe, sees these two guys on horseback, and they are looking at something. Oh yeah, I talked to Abbott about that. Here it is. So the next morning, a couple of jockeys wake up at four in the morning that live very close to the beach. Their routine is they clean out the stables, they saddle up their horses, and they go for an early morning ride along the beach to train the horses. And one of these jockeys is actually still alive today, so I've spoken to him. The other's dead, unfortunately, but they uh, entered the beach. They took their horse for a, a training run along the beach that morning, fairly early in the morning, somewhere around 6, 5.30 to 6. And they passed the body. They didn't think anything of it. They just thought, okay, this is a guy sleeping it off on the beach. Sometimes happens if there's a drunk or something like that. The jockey that's alive did say something a little bit, sounded a little bit enigmatic, that we have no way of ever checking this or following this up because it's so long ago now. But he said he saw a guy walking north up the beach away from the body wearing an overcoat as they passed the body and I said well why did you think that's odd I said is it odd that you know you're seeing a guy early in the morning walking the beach he said no no people do that you know they go for an early morning walk for exercise he says what was odd is the guy was wearing an overcoat for, for the weather and the time of the year and stuff like that he didn't it was out of place It was a little out of place, yeah. So make of that what you will, but there's no way to follow up something like that after all these years. Sure. So anyway, they uh, went on the horses, went for a run along the beach, trained them a bit, you know, half an hour later, 
came back and the two jockeys saw the body in exactly the same position, hadn't moved. And they just thought, hey, that's a little bit strange that it's so still. So they decided to get off their horses, have a closer look. And the elder of the two jockeys, the one that's now dead, he lifted up one foot of the body and noticed the whole leg was stiff as a board. And so they realized this, this guy's dead. And so they put the foot down. And they didn't know what to do. They were kind of standing there discussing with each other what to do. And lo and behold, the jeweler from the night before came up from behind them and said, hey, I've, I saw this body last night sitting here. And he took control of the situation. And he says, look, you guys can go. I'll ring the cops and sort this out because I saw the body before. And this is this is Jack, right? Jack Lyons. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so the two jockeys, the older one who's now dead, his name was Horace Patching, but everyone called him Horry, Horry Patching. So yeah, so Lyons came up, took control of the situation, and rang the cops. The two horsemen went on their merry way because you know they had a, a schedule to maintain, so they couldn't <laughs> hang around. Man, this guy has interviewed everybody that could possibly be interviewed, isn't he, I think? Yeah, it, yeah, you know, and that's only the half of it. As a researcher and an educator with a committed long-term interest in figuring this case out, he tends to make sure the facts from his interviews hold up, which, which I appreciate because we've learned from researching for this show that we often have to rely on sketchy journalism from a long time ago and uh, – <laughs> Well, no, you know, journalists can miss a a few things here and there. Isn't that right, Mr. Boxall? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. No, not to rub that in, but no, No, look, it's, 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 (laughs) it's 110. It's human nature. Little things can get uh, missed here and there. And you know what? I was gonna make this point earlier. Uh, Sometimes it's semantics, whether the suit is nice. Is, Is it a suit of clothes? Yes. Is it just a double-breasted jacket? Things well, like that. Is a double-breasted jacket a nice thing? I think it's nice. Yeah, no, no. Some was, people say it's look, nice. Look, that was the coroner inquest. It was he was smartly dressed. Okay, and right. so uh, again, and Felta said the same thing as well. Right, in his right. book. No, no. It's it's smart uh, means nice, doesn't it? Smart yes, means. yes. Fashion. He, he was dressed fashionably. I believe is the description. So yes. This is my uh, my bigger point though. Is that. You're going to hear a lot of things, and some things are off, some things are uh, – I they may not be as was reported. You know what I'm saying? Yes. The initial report from 1948 of what the journalists saw may be off a little. Things later on down the line is the telephone game. They may be off. But I think at the end of it all, you have to determine for yourself, is it relevant or is it just semantics? So there you go. By the way, we talked about all of the items found on TSM in part one, and we're not going to replay all of that here, but we do have a bonus for our Patreon supporters on this one. The full interview. Yes, the full interview with Professor Abbott will be available in its entirety for all of our Patreon supporters at the $1 level and above. And for $3 and above, there will also be a full downloadable transcript of Professor Abbott's interview. Thank you, Sarah. As well as the others we've done. We'll be posting all of it shortly after this show goes up. You're welcome to download it and listen to it there or read the transcripts, but please do not send copies of any of that material to anyone else. In six months or so, we'll make it available to everyone. 
Okay, Scott, so getting back to Professor Abbott's observations, he talks about an important clue concerning a matchbox, uh, one that could fuel the conspiracy angle, perhaps? Yeah, yeah he, he pointed out that there was this cop who was the first one on the scene, John Moss, actually was his name, who had, who had been off duty at the time but answered the call anyway, and somehow he overlooked the box of matches that TSM had when he was taking inventory of what was on them. This one simple oversight led to the evolution of an entire tangential conspiracy theory. (laughs) So uh, I talked to Professor Abbott about it, and here it is. The interesting thing is this cop never saw the box of matches. And we know the guy did have a box of matches because this is then recorded in the inquest six months later that he had a box of matches. So this, this guy was well enough for one minute to take out a box of matches, light up a cigarette and smoke a cigarette and then put the matches back in his pocket carefully enough that the cop missed it and didn't see that box of matches. And the next minute was dead. So the cop also recorded that there was a half-smoked cigarette on the guy's lapel of his jacket. The cop did go to the press and spin a story and say, I didn't see any matches on this guy, and yet he had a half-smoked cigarette. So how did he light the cigarette? And so there was a conspiracy theory emerging because of that. The implication being that Somebody was there to have lit his cigarette and maybe somebody killed him. So this all came out in the press. However, at the time of the inquest, that cop was there and he never brought up the question of no box of matches. So one assumes by his silence that he realized that by that time he was wrong and that he had just simply missed the box of matches. I'm really on board with Abbott's approach to this investigation. He very much believes in Occam's razor, and he's quite aware of even his own confirmation bias. Here he points out just how easy it is for a simple thing, such as a cop trying to save face because he overlooks something, to become an entire conspiratorial tangent. And this is kind of stuff you have to keep in mind. When you're looking at any big story that has so many theoretical offshoots, you have to keep a level head. Exactly. So that's the point. Who lit the cigarette? Now, again, you can go off on different tangents. I've seen people run out, you know, smokers who run out of matches, and you'll see them light the next cigarette with the with the one they yeah. <laughs> they smoke the butt down on, yeah. and uh, because they have no more matches, you know, or as he said, did, did someone else light it? But a simple thing like that can fuel that. Now, uh, this goes to my point I made earlier, before we heard, we heard that, in that different things can mean so much more. Like the shoes, were they brown, were they black? Does that matter? Were they Oxford shoes, or were they tap shoes, or ballet shoes? Now, again, if they were dance shoes, that fits a whole other line. Yeah. So that makes a huge difference. Yes. Well, in, in, in as much as we know. Yes. So anyway, that's what I'm saying, is that when we go through this story, us... And I think Professor Abbott does this as well. That's why I uh, I really like where he goes. You know, some things I might I might not totally be on board with. I think is the same as you, but I would say most of it. I see his reasoning here, and 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 being very rational about it. And again, not to be too credulous, not to be too believing, but or, or skeptical that uh, that none of this is uh, possible. But yes, anyway. So I like that. I like that line uh, that he's taking. Yeah, and with with regard to all the different kinds of theories and possibilities of what may have happened here, we're fully going to go off the deep end on that in the last part of this series, you know, because that's what our listeners like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. 
Yeah, yeah. It's okay. About George Suclos. <laughs> we love you, George. No, I, yes, one day he'll be uh, he'll be on the show. I hope. Uh, but yeah, no. That what we're saying is that we're going to explore all the fun possibilities, as we always do. Kind of interject our own reasoning here, and then let you take it. Let you let you decide. Okay, now I've been wondering this myself. What does Abbott have to say? What is his assessment of the competence of the investigation at that time? You know what? I did ask him about that. That's a difficult thing to say. I think by today's standards, we would say it wasn't that competent. But I think by the standards of the time, they were pretty thorough in a lot of ways. They went to a lot of lengths to try and find out who this guy was. They did more than you would expect. You have to realize that Adelaide 1948 was a small town, possibly something like Phoenix 1948, you know, if you want a a U.S. parallel there. And, you know, the cops would not have seen a case like this before. This would have been something completely new and unexpected for them. They wouldn't have uh, experience with all the twists and turns that this type of case brings upon them. So I think... At the end of the day, they acted as best as they could and were very professional. And it is very easy in hindsight to say, oh, they missed this, they missed that, and that was a bit sloppy, etc. However, I think given the circumstances, the time, the era, and the kind of lack of experience of this type of case, I think they, they did really well. They were very thorough in many ways, even though they did miss some things. All right, so that covers the initial discovery again and brings to light some of Professor Abbott's observations about it all. Yes, what about the suitcase? Uh, This is what I find fascinating is that, like he says, a weird, odd collection of mundane items. So (laughs) it's at once mundane and everyday, but just like a weird assortment because you know look we most people have have traveled. You've been on vacation. You go to the uh, you go to Disneyland. You go to the hotel that's right next there. uh, Right, I always take an aluminum cone. (laughs) <laughs> aluminum comb and knives you've ground down and out of which you've made your own sheaths and yes. like folded tin. Uh, no, this is what I'm, my point is. That they're kind of like weird chore, little, little tools that you would have in a tool bag along with some, yeah, he had slippers and the, uh, you and, know what? And the coat. Yeah. I just want to, uh, this is one of our patented tangents. I just yeah. want to quickly say that an aluminum comb is an extremely useful device. And I'm going to tell you why I think okay. that. When, when I was a kid and I, I used to live in Denver and my mother and I moved, she was a, a single parent. We moved across the country from Colorado to North Carolina to be closer to her extended family. Yeah. And when we made this trip, we were in a U-Haul truck And at some hotel, I don't remember where we were, we got locked out of the truck. And we couldn't get in the truck. We're in the middle of nowhere. This is pre-cell phones. We're talking about 1979, I think. And I remember very distinctly that she had an aluminum comb, and we took it out, and we shimmied the lock on the U-Haul truck with the (laughs) aluminum comb. It saved us. Really? So it's a very useful tool. I commend the Somerton man (laughs) for traveling with an aluminum comb. Right. Well, again, that's that's a big clue because... (laughs) No, that, you know what I'm saying? Like that, uh, you could say, look, look, it was just a comb. But the idea is, yeah, that's an unusual item for maybe an Australian man to have, but not during wartime for an American. No, not at all. So all th- the soldiers all had them, right? So, yeah, which well, is what he said, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, but that's my point about the stuff found in the case, just the stenciling kit, right? Just yeah. the, the, the thread. It's, it's like somebody who was used to darning his own socks, mending his own clothes. Well, maybe, I think, uh, you, I think dealing- it's safe to say he was into crafting. 
I, mean, I feel yeah. like he's the kind of guy you might have seen at Hobby Lobby or <laughs> right. buying some glitter. Yeah, and and a, and a, and a, give me a full size dinner knife that I'm going to sharpen, grind down myself yes, later. No, point. but that's what I'm saying. It's like, look, it, you've been on vacation. I've certainly, you know, you, you go out for a long weekend or even a week, and it seems like he was going to be out for that long, not longer because he didn't have enough supplies. But like, it's not again. It's not like what a business traveler would have. That's a good you know point. what I'm saying, and and a few things. It's like you know what? Why don't you wait till you get home to <laughs> to uh, to so you know to pick the part the seams with your sharpened down knife. Yeah, because and they, and again, I was thinking about this. You you know th- that's the difference between a long knife is that you would want something shorter for more control. So either he's picking apart seams, something that he needs short sharp control with that he just couldn't find a, a short knife for. Anyway, just a really weird assortment. But again, nothing too outrageous. It wasn't like there was an actual gun or a smoking yeah. gun or a da- an assassin's dagger, you know, right. or a stiletto. These are pretty mundane things. Yeah, so I talked to Professor Abbott about the suitcase. Here's that part of the interview. What was mysterious is that the police found a suitcase checked into the cloakroom of the main train station in Adelaide. And they determined that this suitcase belonged to the guy, even though there was no ID to connect it to the guy. They found that suitcase had been checked in the day before he died. So it's in the right time sequence. That's, so that's check number one. The other thing that checks out is all the clothes in the suitcase fit the guy. You know, the right size. The other thing that checks out is that the guy had labels missing from the clothes he was wearing, and there were also labels ripped off the clothes in the suitcase. So there was a correlation there. And the clincher, the thing that really convinced the police, is that the guy had a couple of buttons sewn onto his jacket uh, with a different thread to the original because the buttons had dropped off and he had re-sewn them on. And the little part of thread was in the suitcase, and it was a slightly unusual sort of sepia brown color, which exactly matched the thread on the man's jacket. So this is kind of what clinched it for them in their minds, that this is indeed the guy's suitcase. Now, when we look at that suitcase, what's strange about it is the disparate items in it. It's, it's very disparate, and there's a change of trousers in there, some shirts in there, some underwear And you can see there's enough stuff in there to survive kind of a week. However, there's zero socks in in the suitcase, which is a bit strange. So it's not that the guy wasn't wearing socks. It's that there were no spare socks in the suitcase. Here's a suitcase that looks as if it's been prepared to last a week, and yet there's no socks. So it's just an odd occurrence, and one wonders what that means. may mean nothing. It may simply mean that those socks had somehow got lost out of the suitcase before the contents were properly recorded. And that could happen in any number of ways because the suitcase was actually found unlocked in the cloakroom. So they could have gone missing while the suitcase was in the cloakroom or they could have accidentally gone missing when the suitcase was being handled by the cops. And how, when I read about that lock, I was curious, what kind of lock was on the suitcase? Was it a combination lock or a key lock? It was just that standard little lock you see on old suitcases. You know, the kind I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know, where the thing clicks down and you've got these little two little things and you pull them apart and they've got a little hole and 
So, I mean, those locks are really easy to pick any anyway. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And I don't know if you ever remember picking those when you were a kid. I did. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I do, actually. <laughs> I know because my mom had some suitcases with those on them. Sounds like you, when you were a kid, you were just like me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we do have a lot in common, actually. I feel like I had read somewhere that there was evidence of some a sticker or something on the outside of the suitcase that seemed like it had been removed and people were speculating that that was to anonymize it or something. Yeah, you know how in the old days, suitcases, you used to have stickers on the side like Hawaii sure. that showed all the places you've been. It was a kind of a thing you did back in those days. People don't do that anymore for some reason, but you used to have a sticker it looked that the the, the, um, the suitcase had the appearance that there was a sticker there because there was a shape of where a sticker had once been and had been removed. And so one wonders, well, why was that sticker removed? Has this suitcase been anonymized, as you say? Interrupting here for a second. You know, the dark comedy side of my personality starts to laugh at how possibly completely mundane, as you said, the solution to this case might wind up being <laughs> grow fast. Grow fast. You, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. You always bring that up to me. But t- tell our listeners about grow fast. I think it's a great encapsulation of a of a of an idea, a line that I love, and that a whole gigantic mystery, known the world over for years and years, is nothing but a small misunderstanding. So and wait, yeah, what's it from? Well, it's a it's a David Mamet movie called Homicide. Oh right, and uh, I'm not really going to spoil it for you here, yeah. although it's it's pretty old. It's, yeah. I think it's probably 20 years old now. Uh, but Joe Mantegna is this homicide detective in New York, and he gets a clue. There's somebody shooting at this family. He thinks so. He shows up and he doesn't think there's anything to it. And then it starts to build. He finds a scrap of paper on it called – it just says the words Grofaz in right. printing, much like Tom Anshud. Yeah, and much maybe. like the code in the back of the book maybe. Exactly. That's all he's got to go on. Does it mean anything? Maybe not. He doesn't know. And what happens through a series of meeting different people, he ends up doing some illegal things <laughs> in the name of Jewish justice, can we say, like identifying with his roots. He's supposed to be a, a, a Jewish – Detective who has kind of lapsed in his own religion, and he thinks uh, Joe Montana. Well, he's an actor. <laughs> Come on, I know <laughs> so, he actually yeah. owns the pizza yeah. place up the street. Oh, no, taste, Chicago, taste, taste Chicago, taste Chicago, delicious. Yeah, not of Chicago, but no. it is delicious. Yeah, I yeah. will say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the point being is that this whole series of incredible events happens. Uh, he gets himself into possibly well, he could die. You know, yeah. he gets himself in, into great trouble over something that may mean nothing at all. And so, rent the movie. It's, oh, it's, if you've got to like, do the spoiler. No, no. If you, you, you want me to say that? Well, okay. let's just say, spoiler alert. Well, no, yeah. you're right. We can't do it. <laughs> no, I'm going to let it dangle. Yeah, well, let's let it let dangle. It dangle. So, uh, and, it's a good parallel. Case, yeah. No, if you like Mammoth, it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting premise. You know, like, like Professor Abbott says, it may mean absolutely nothing at all. The missing socks. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, they got lost in the dryer or, yeah. or somebody or s- at the station, they just fell out. Somebody needed socks. Somebody <laughs> broke into the suitcase <laughs> that was abandoned and yeah. took the socks home. You know, I thought about this uh-huh. about uh, TSM laying on the beach. Maybe he had a wallet and there weren't many footprints around. But obviously there was his. I mean, he had to have left some. Yeah. Uh, and you never know. I mean, at the time, 
uh, it's probably less likely. I would say nowadays that wallet would be gone in about 30 seconds, probably, yeah. <laughs> if it was a major U.S. metropolitan beach. You never know, though. But what I'm saying is that he may have had a wallet. It yeah. may, somebody may have just, you know what, I'll just nick this and uh, leave the rest of it and his uh, unsmoked cigarette laying on his, on his lapel, left or right, and that'll be the end of it. And, <laughs> uh, and you know what I'm saying? Like, that could have been the mystery solved. Oh, it's Joe Smith. Okay, well, that's, you know, he's American or he's British. Most of the mystery solved. Right. It's just, we don't know how he died, but here's this guy. He died mysteriously, but we know who he is. Yeah. Here's another interesting point. What would the police say? Say you didn't have a very extended family or uh, friend network. And no you Facebook just, page. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. You you didn't have much of that. But His your last entry says, uh, going to Adelaide. <laughs> going to Adelaide. And you're <laughs> oh, found. Now we yeah. know who it is. Well, no, you're found, uh, you're found in your, uh, you're found in your car. Yeah. And they think, we don't know if this is a homicide or not. Well, we're going to have to check into this. What would the police make of the things left that are in your car right now? Well, your car is pretty right clean. Right this second. Yeah, exactly. Oh, just my like, car. No, I'm I thought just you saying, were talking like, to the listeners. <laughs> there's a, I don't know there's about a mysterious cars. book. Okay, remember the, remember the song uh, kind my of My car is pretty clean. I'm a little anal about that. Yeah, yeah. So. No, but I'm, what I'm saying is a, like... Uh, I think there's um, some bubbles. There's well, a bubble thing that my son left in there. Okay. And uh, <laughs> no, but that, that's he what I'm saying. to blow bubbles. If people didn't... <laughs> People didn't know yet his son. Yeah, what is it? Was he at a party? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. If they think it was a homicide, they got to piece it together. They don't know much about you. That's what I'm saying. Is that what's interesting about this case? If there was nothing in the car, well, there's nothing to go on. I right. mean, it's just that's yeah. Well, it's you're a you're reverse mystery. engineering it. Yeah, right. So there's a few. There's a, right, exactly what was he doing? Uh, kind of like uh, who's the singer that uh, we, we? There's a song about basically meeting up with a UFO out in the desert. Jim and, Sullivan. Yes, his car was found. Uh, out at the edge of the desert, footprints leading away, fading into the desert. I think he only... His, Volkswagen Bug. Yeah, his guitar. And his guitar, his favorite guitar. Which he never car. left behind. Yes, we're getting a little bit off the No, track. but what I'm saying is... <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is that it's the setup. And if you're thinking about this as a detective case, as a crime scene possibly, you that's what the detectives are doing. They're trying to piece this together by what they found. Yeah. So anyway, yes, like Jim's guitar, which he would never have left. That's a great song. Yeah, he wrote yeah. a song about meeting a UFO in the desert. Then his he disappeared, and they found his car in the desert. <laughs> With, and he has yeah. never been found. So, it, yeah. we, you know, we should talk about that later. We actually no, no, used a, to yeah. hide the lyrics to that song in all, uh, like the first 15 or 20 episodes of the show on the lyrics page before they did the podcast category for iTunes on the ID3 tags. I would put the lyrics to... Jim Sell- there was an Easter egg that nobody has found. Well, there you go. Well, I, thanks for spoiling. Anyway, yes. yeah, I know. all right. So let's no, get no, back. But, to, let's get right. back. So no, but what we're talking about here is the odd stuff found in the suitcase, like the stenciling kit. They think he may have had some sailing experience because it's something that uh, was it is it a, a midshipman or a first uh, first mate would third use, mate I third think mate was, yes yeah. would use to identify. You've seen this. You lay it down, and nowadays you can use a spray yeah, spray paint. painting a crate. Or, right, yeah. right. They're just cut out letters to to quickly to quickly letter something. So right. they find this, which is an odd thing to find in your travel suitcase on holiday. Yeah. And I, you know uh, yeah. what, I talked to I talked to Professor Abbott about that. Um, why don't we play that part of the interview? Yeah. So uh, l- let me just first of all go through what he actually had. So he had a stencil brush, which was determined to have some black substance in the bristles. Right, which they forgot to test or couldn't test, right? Or they couldn't get results. Yeah, there probably wasn't enough of it to test it back in those days because there was no such thing as a mass spectrometer in Adelaide at the time. So, yeah, all they knew is it was used to blacken something. It had a black substance in it. He had just a standard table knife, 
that had been put on a grinding wheel and sharpened to a point. And this is the old-style table knife that you remember may remember when you were a kid and it kind of had sort of either ivory or fake ivory-looking handles. You know the one? Yes, absolutely. It was that, that kind of knife. The other thing he had was a pair of scissors. We've tracked down the manufacturer of those scissors. Now I'm trying to remember who that is because it had a little logo on it, which we found. It's on, it's on my videos and I've forgotten. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, listen, don't, please, do if, not fault you yourself. If you want that detail, it's on the videos. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, we found the manufacturer. But this manufacturer is meaningless. I think it's British in origin, but these were sold in the U.S., in Australia, all over the world. It uh, doesn't tell you anything. And these scissors were also sharpened to points on a grinding wheel as well, which is interesting after the fact. So I don't really have any opinions on these three items. Oh, he also had an, what was called an electrician screwdriver. We have no photo of it, so we don't know what it means by electrician screwdriver. But I remember when I was a kid, you could get screwdrivers that had insulation around them, black insulation around the shaft, and you just had the little metal tip. And the idea was you could screw with those and you wouldn't accidentally short against something. So I imagine that's what they mean by an electrician's screwdriver. Okay. Do you remember those? I I don't. I feel like, you know, I was an electrician's helper for a while, and uh, but that was many, many years after this. And I don't, we, we never had anything. We did have screwdrivers that would light up if something was hot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess they had they had to be insulated. They had that in 1948. No, but they, no. would have had these old screwdrivers that had an insulated shaft. It had a kind of sheath on it. Right. So that you wouldn't kind of touch something that was live accidentally. Um, that was the idea of those. Uh, I, ma- I imagine that's what they're talking about. Right. Gotcha. Okay, so let's go. Well, and the other thing oh, had, which was strange, was a little piece of zinc oh right a little sheet of zinc about roughly one inch by one inch what would you use that for yeah that's interesting oh uh he made his own homemade sheath to go around his knife and his scissors because remember he packed it in his suitcase so didn't want it to damage his clothing so he made the sheath out of the zinc sheet and then wrap the zinc sheet with sticky bandage plaster. You know, in the old days when you wanted to have a plaster, they didn't come in little segments that you can do now. That used to come in a reel. Remember that? Yes, yes. A sticky reel. He had used a sticky reel of plaster, Band-Aid plaster. Do you say, you don't say plaster, do you say Band-Aid, right? Yeah, we say Band-Aid, yeah. Yeah, sticky Band-Aid. right. And he wrapped this Band-Aids, uh, sticky Band-Aid stuff around the zinc sheeting and made his own little sheets, scabbards rather, to protect his uh, clothing from these uh, two items. So that's what he had actually used the zinc sheeting for. And there was just happened to be a little offcut in his suitcase that was still left over. Okay, so that's a little less mysterious then about about the zinc. Yeah, if you look at it that way, sure. I mean, he's crafty. Like I said, he's making a homemade sheath for this stuff that might cut or damage his clothes. 
Hey, folks, if you just can't get enough of us, which I can't imagine who would feel that way after this <laughs> super long show, but if you can't... Well, you can find us doing a guest spot with our friends over at Film Beef Podcast. God only knows why, but they had us go see the new Jungle Book movie this week, and so with my son in tow, Forrest and I went and checked it out. Well, Film Beef is a movie review slash discussion show hosted by Ryan Snelling and Phil Wilson. Southern boys from my neck of the woods, and you're going to hear my accent get a little bit crazier when I'm talking to them. But anyway, they've (laughs) they've had a lot of great guests on their show, including director Lexi Alexander, who also happens to be an outstanding martial artist, and YouTube sensation Schmoes No host and creator Mark Ellis. Their show's a bit more irreverent than ours, so you may hear some adult language, but we had a blast talking not only about the new Jungle Book, but also James Cameron's upcoming plan to make 37 Avatar sequels. So you can find them on Facebook or Twitter, where their handle is at FilmBeefYeah, Y-E-A-H. Or look for them at their central hub, FilmBeef.com. Because we talk a lot, they had to break our visit into two episodes, and both have already been posted. So find them wherever you get your podcasts. FilmBeef. Yeah, you know, something uh, just occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, did you get a chance to ask Professor Abbott about that one witness who came out like 11 years later and said that he saw someone carrying a body oh, yeah. over their shoulder down the beach near where TSM was found that night? I, I had to ask about that. That's pretty compelling because, again, that's yeah. that's a huge... What? Yeah, you know, but it was 11 years later. Yeah, well, and again, so it's like there's night, a... But... Right, there's a pretty rational... He gives a pr- pretty rational explanation, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to play it for you here. Well, I've I've never interviewed this guy myself, so I don't know the verity of the story. But what is written about it, my personal feeling is that there isn't enough information in this story to support it. For example, how does this guy reporting this so many years later know that that was the exact day. That was going to be my question for you, but it sounds like we both have that question. (laughs) So that has never been answered. So I kind of dismiss this story until whoever came up with the story provides more evidence. Is it clear if he's still alive? It's not clear, no. This story is is not a bit of research I've done. This is something that's been done by Jerry Feltis, the cop who's worked on this case and wrote a book about the case. So it's really his territory, and he hasn't provided full enough information to check the story, like simple things like how does this guy know what day that this happened on? He doesn't even give the name of the guy who gave the story. So it's very difficult to follow up these things and check if they're correct. Well, that's interesting. Here's a point where it's something you kind of want to believe because it makes the story juicier that there's a mysterious dark figure carrying the body because, oh, well, there we go. Clearly, there's conspiracy afoot. But I think rationally, as an investigator, if you can't really back that up, there's nobody to talk to. You can't dismiss it, of course, because maybe the guy is telling the truth. But you really can't hang your conclusions on that because it's just not there's just not enough there, I think. So so he's acknowledged it. But right. He hasn't really followed up as far as he can tell. Not much to the story, not much to substantiate it. Yes. Exactly. Uh, But anyway, oh, this is what I was thinking about the 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 uh, the suitcase and stuff. And it sounds like this guy, yeah, like you said, he's handy. He And if he'd bought it secondhand, that was a point that brought up, I think, the first episode that we made, that it, during the time, it's there's wartime rationing going on. If you bought your clothes secondhand, maybe he bought the suitcase secondhand. He's taken off all the markings as 
not in a way to really to personalize it, but depersonalize it. As yeah. You, you know, yeah. So anyway. Maybe so. Yeah, exactly. So it's a weird collection. And people are strange. They, they have weird, they, there's weird things that they do. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's something, though, you, you can let be based on fact. Yeah. Why don't you clear up for our listeners the Clelands, the, the Professor Emeritus at the University of Adelaide, and then the other, the well, other yeah, Cleland. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a little bit confusing. There were, and maybe not to you guys because so you, you didn't know it yet, but we'll go ahead and tell you, explain it to you. Uh, there were two men with the last name Cleland involved in the investigation. There was Sir John Burton Cleland, known as Bert, who was a pathologist on the case, and his cousin, Thomas Erskine Cleland, known as Tom, who was the coroner. So to get this all straight, Tom Cleland presides over the initial inquest as the coroner. The postmortem was performed by Dr. John Matthew Dwyer, who was known as Barb Dwyer, which is <laughs> You're gonna do your bar- one yeah, of my no, favorite facts yeah. of this whole case. Right. Barb Dwyer. I mean, that is the most Australian nickname I could possibly <laughs> think of besides yeah. Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. It's but, awesome. Yeah, the Barb Dundee Dwyer. Part. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's come just, on. Obviously, it's a time of, of nicknames. Yes. And, but, uh, but no, those, so those are the main players in well, the, post, uh, the post-mortem here. Yeah, but yeah. Bob, or, or excuse me, Barb Dwyer did the post-mortem, uh, which was just a few days after TSM was found. Six months after that, at the request of, the, of his coroner cousin, they were first cousins, Sir John Cleland, right? So he's been asked by Tom Cleland yeah. to re-examine the body. So, which he came and did pretty much visually only, but he did take a very serious look at the clothes and the suitcase and all its contents. And I, I think most of those pictures you see of the suitcase and, and what was inside it, that was a result of Sir John Cleland's investigation. Well, it, yeah, he's, he's, look, he's very uh, senior and well-respected, I believe, right? Yes. And so he's, it's kind of a consulting thing, right? Yeah. Come on in, please have another, uh, take another gander at this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, tell, tell us what you think. Well, Abbott, talk, it's all very confusing, but Abbott talks about it here. So Dwyer carries out a post-mortem. He sends off samples of blood and urine and things like that for laboratory testing to see if there was any poisons, and no poison was found. So obviously it was suspicious enough that he wanted to check that, but with the technology of the time, they, they couldn't detect anything. They checked for obvious things like barbiturates and stuff that were testable in those days, and there was nothing like that in his system. But he did notice some odd things about the body, uh, Dwyer. He noticed that the guy's spleen was enlarged. So if somebody has some kind of infection or maybe some kind of liver problem, you might expect there to be an enlarged spleen. And indeed, there was some sort of problem with the guy's liver. Dwyer says the lobules of his liver were destroyed. Those are his words at the inquest. Now, when I speak to modern pathologists and say, well, what's that mean? They say, we don't know. They said this is very informal language that he's used at the inquest. We need to see his actual post-mortem medical report to find out what he actually meant by that. And this is another sad thing about this case. There's so many items uh, lost, like the man's possessions. And now uh, this is another one to add to the list. No one can find the post-mortem report. It doesn't seem to exist anymore. I've uh, searched through all kinds of archives, made inquiries about it, and we can't find it anywhere to this day. I live in naive hope 
that one day it will turn up and it's just simply being misfiled somewhere. I'm hoping that's the case. Okay, what's the story with these missing reports? Well, Jerry Feltis, in his book, he's the retired detective who actually worked on the case, has identified, as have we, that there are many conspiracy theorists with interest in this case, and they think it's strange that files are missing, most notably the autopsy report. But Abbott has said the same thing, but both Feltis and Abbott feel the files are just simply missing. Feltis describes the state of the files for the case as as pretty much identical to any other file from the same era, subjected to moves, reorganization, and just plain getting old. And also, as we pointed out, in a lot of ways, for the department, this is just another cold case with almost no threads to follow. They have all kinds of real murders happening, real crimes, yeah. <laughs> things are going yeah. on. Yeah. And, you know, this thing is getting older and older and older, and it's a bunch of dead ends, and the guy's buried, and they're probably losing interest in it, frankly, yeah. you know, interpersonally. But then also they've got these moldy old files and things sitting in rooms, and people are taking stuff home, which you're going to hear a little bit about later. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot going on. So it's really not necessarily that that big a mystery that the autopsy report is missing in a case this old from this particular department, not casting any aspersions on right. their organizational right. skills, because at the time that was how you organized. Nobody was, you know, really thinking long term, what case is going to take, you know, 50 years to solve? <laughs> right. Well, so. no, look, these things happen, okay, because you got to remember, nothing's electronic, there's no cloud, there's no hard drives. There's nothing to back it up. If it's a sheet of paper, it's the one sheet of paper. Yeah. So even things that are intentionally meant to be destroyed by government agencies, MK Ultra, <laughs> you know, are get misplaced by yes. accident and pop up later. Yes, so, and that's how we know about MK Ultra. Yeah, exactly. But so, yeah, and it's 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 also funny because when you read Feltus's book, he when he talks about being a detective at that time and they were having to use a carbon copy and you know, most of our listeners probably have no idea what that is, but I do remember <laughs> yeah. a little bit when uh, when I was first learning to yeah. type when I was a kid, because my mom had a typewriter, you would have this carbon. It's like three sheets of paper, and you would type, and it would come through. And he was talking about how you would you would just be so bummed out if you needed four copies of something. Because <laughs> yeah. then you got you to do, do it twice, yeah, as opposed well, to three times. And, you know, that gives you an idea of what yeah. they're dealing with back then. Well, listen, you know. youngins, when you CC somebody, that's what that means. That's right. CC yes. stands for carbon copy. Did you guys know that? <laughs> well, there you go. No, think about it. There's no way to, to do that. Yes. So, well, that's why they had typing pools. Generally, ladies who could this type. This a swimming pool that you would sit in when you were typing, <laughs> right? Filled no, with no, ladies no. at desks with typewriters. <laughs> no. But that's the, the, the crux of it, is that you have an army of people at typewriters who could type really fast, yes, probably uh, 60 to 110, 120 words per minute. My mom types like at 100. She was wow. 110 or something. I oh. am I'm 65 words, no errors. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah not bad, yeah. I gotta say. But no, that's what's interesting, though, is that, yes, think about the time, just manila folders, pieces of paper getting shuffled. I'm always amazed that, you know, stuff lasts from the Middle Ages that... Uh, that shows up, it gets it gets rolled up. But this is the thing, as I think you were hoping, or you'd mentioned this before, possibly something may turn up one day. Yeah. So Abbott himself, has he been digging through these files personally? Uh, funny you should ask. I've made requests and nothing has come up. We also have old autopsy reports at the university because, you see, Dwyer worked at the university as well. So I've been through all Dwyer's old notebooks from the period where he did autopsies, and there's nothing, nothing in there. So I've physically gone through those myself. But then there's things that I can't physically go through because I'm not allowed, and that is 
for example, the state archive, I have to make an official request and they have to check for me and they have found nothing. But I live in naive hope that maybe they've still got it somewhere and it's just misfiled and it will show up one day. I've checked with uh, Dwyer's family to see if any old notes of his were preserved after he died. And unfortunately, they've confirmed that any old stuff he had was thrown out. So they didn't, they decided not to keep that sort of stuff when he died, which is very unfortunate. So in terms of poisons that they could test for at the time, I mean, would on that list, would there have been, for example, strychnine and arsenic and and sort of the ones that are more obvious these days, They at that time, were they able to test for those? The documentation isn't clear. All, all I read on the documentation is it says no barbiturates. So I'm not sure what else they may or may not have tested for. One would imagine they would have tested for the obvious things that was within the capability of the time. But yeah, sorry, I can't answer that question. That's okay, that's okay. (laughs) Due to the limited information we're given. So Dwyer records that this guy has something wrong with his liver. We don't know what exactly, and he's got an enlarged spleen. So those two are probably connected to each other. And it it suggests to me that this guy has a pre-existing illness because you can't have a a spleen that's enlarged uh, three times its normal weight just overnight. This takes time to do that. So I believe the guy, although he looked physically fit and had a fantastic physique, something was going on with his internal health and he was possibly in a weakened state. So one possible hypothesis how he actually died was if he wasn't feeling the greatest at that day, it's possible that he lay down against the wall on the beach, maybe he's feeling a little tired, had a little smoke. And because of the way he was lying with his neck cricked up against the wall, perhaps the soft sand slightly giving, he could have accidentally asphyxiated in that position. And it could be something as as sort of mundane as that that has caused this huge mystery. And it might not be anything nefarious at all. And although he was fit, if he was in a pre-existing weakened state, it would be very difficult to stand up and get out of that position. Could they not have determined if he had died from asphyxiation? When you die of positional asphyxia in that case, it's very difficult to just by looking at the internal organs to say whether that's asphyxiation or not. Usually pathologists take into a number of factors into account, uh, including the position the person died in and whether that's consistent with asphyxia. So there aren't sort of specific pathological markers you can test for inside the body necessarily. So given that he was in such an awkward position, I would guess that asphyxia is a, is a good hypothesis. Of course, we can't say anything for certain, of course, because this is so long ago. But given the information I have, it seems to me this is a much more likely hypothesis than poisoning. The problem I have with a poisoning hypothesis is, A, we need a motive. (laughs) B, there was no uh, bottle found on the sand next to where he was. And C, if the poison was taken much earlier, then how did he get to where he was? So 
there are a number of difficulties with the poisoning theory, but you know, nothing's impossible. It's just that on balance of probabilities, my feeling is I go with the asphyxia hypothesis at the moment with the information we have right now. With the enlarged spleen, are there poisons that can create that or that would have still had to have been a pre-existing condition for him whether he was poisoned or not? I think uh, a spleen to be enlarged three times its original weight would have to take time, would have to take a number of days to do that. You couldn't poison somebody overnight and that happen. So I believe that's a pre-existing condition. The spleen. Well, you know, that's that's a major medical clue and one of the very the few ones they have. And the only thing I could think of, and again, it's been thought of before, certainly here, uh, that maybe if it was around today with our the advances in medicine that we have now, maybe they could have found something. I don't have the problems with the poison theory that Abbott has, but he, he makes really valid points here. And here's the thing I'm going to say. We're really going to get into the poison stuff in part three. We're going to go way down that rabbit hole. So we'll come back to this stuff. But just keep in mind, we're not writing it off. Uh, but we're also not saying that it's it's definitely what happened. And, and that's a controversial thing to say because the cause of death is listed as probable poisoning, even though they couldn't find anything. All right. So now we get to the taxidermist that made the plaster bust, right? Paul Lawson. And he worked at the Adelaide Museum. A taxidermist, right. Okay. So here's the point I want to make. Tess, Tess actually <laughs> yeah. brought this up yeah. when she was helping us put this one together. She's like, that's weird, right? Well, he's not stuffed. <laughs> you can't call him in to stuff him and mount him on a wall. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a little strange. Well, that, look. That, that's, they're doing... You know, they're dealing with who they can get to. I He's guess. used to dealing with dead carcasses. You're not calling in the gardener to, to make a plaster bust of a dead guy. Look, it's a little morbid. It's uh, not people. Some people are very queasy around uh, the deceased. So, yeah, yeah. so that's true. Here's a guy that no, he's, he knows how to do this. I don't know if he's licensed to do that, but but uh, he does. But you know what? People used to do that quite a bit. Back in the old days, you would make a death mask of somebody. Yes. Before photography, you at least had plaster. And you wanted to remember what the guy looked like yes. before he turned into mush. They should so, have done that with Emperor Maximilian. Anyway. <laughs> it, it would have been all beard. Call yeah. back to the KGC series yeah. if you haven't heard it. I did. But anyway, so the reason they called Paul Lawson in was it was getting pretty clear that TSM had been kept on a shelf about as long as could be possible. And since he was still unidentified, they needed something that people could continue to view that might have an inkling of who he was. Right, and there there were some issues there. Okay, so the formalin, the formaldehyde that they had used to embalm him, according to Feltus, I guess, right, you were telling me in his book, that was causing TSM's skin to shrink up or, or draw back. And, oh, you know what made me think of, uh, that's another uh, uh, myth that people think that your fingernails grow after you die. Yeah. But really, it's your tissue shrinking and, and drying up and pulling back. So your fingernails, of course, don't shrink. They just look longer. The Which more is creepy. you know with Forrest <laughs> Yeah. So, yes, <laughs> dig, up, uh, dig up that corpse arm and take a look at it and see if, uh, see if we're telling the truth. But, okay, so no, it, it, additionally, though, all right, in other areas of the face, without the muscle structure and the sinews to kind of hold things in place. I don't like that word. Um, sinew? Yeah, stop. Uh, you also don't like uh, shredded barbecue, I notice. Yeah. yeah because I know. of the texture. You're a texture guy. I get I'm that. I'm a texture uh, guy. That's fine. Yeah. Nothing All wrong my with that. Fellow North Carolinians, just unsubscribed, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he. You know what? I I'll uh, make a little aside here. He likes some things that are very popular. Does not like things that uh, most people like. Coffee. Uh, <laughs> I don't like coffee. But shredded barbecue. 
Okay. I like Guinness, though. He Can does. we get back on point here? All right. Well, anyway, no. You know what I'm saying is, think about it. Uh, it you know, it made me think when you were describing uh, the, uh, the the tissues kind of sagging and possibly disguising him a little bit to people who may have seen somebody, but they come in to identify him. He's getting a little uh, puffy and mushy. But remember in uh, in, in uh, Minority Report, he's he's grimacing, folks. Mushy. But remember in Minority Report and Tom Cruise, he's got that toxin pen, oh, yeah, the disguise pen, and, yeah. he, and he injects himself under his chin, and his whole face gets saggy, yeah. and it makes him look like he's 110-year-old Alfred Boxall. So cool. Uh, you know, so he's not that bad yet, but he doesn't look fresh and springy like he was. This was a guy no. who was fit and in shape, yes. and obviously took some good care of himself. Yes, he, he, wasn't, he was now mushy and not springy any longer. But what I want to say is yeah. that when I noticed the disparity between the photos of TSM shortly after the autopsy and the photos and eventual 3D CGI rendering of the bust... Mistakenly, I and I think I might have said this in part one. I thought the bus was more accurate, but in reality, the post-autopsy photos are a far better look at what TSM actually looked like. Yeah, and, and in fact, I spoke to Abbott about it, and apparently, he's recently had a portrait done to give a more accurate version of what he probably really looked like. Let me see if I can find that here. The bust is his body after being six months in a freezer, dead. And, you know, that's going to distort, uh, create lots of distortions. And also the bust is being done after the autopsy. And an autopsy also distorts your face. So what we've tried to do is carefully try to undo the distortions artistically and, and look at the descriptions that the police had made of the guy, what exactly was the color of his hair, what was the color of his eyes, and actually draw that in and show how he might have looked like if he was alive. And so, of course, there's a bit of artistic license in a painting like that, but but no more artistic license than a police photo identity thing of uh, of a, a murderer going around New York, say, uh, and they're looking for this guy, and for that identity kit photo is near enough to then identify the guy. So that's that's what I've had in the back of my mind when doing this because my feeling is it's very difficult to identify somebody from a photo of them when they're dead. They don't always look great when they're dead. For example, if you look at JFK's photo when he was dead or Marilyn Monroe's photo when they were dead, you know, you had mentioned that in the AMA, and I immediately went and looked at her, and I don't know if I would have recognized her. Yeah. I, now, now, there's some bloggers who say they would have recognized her, and, and that's great for them, but I personally wouldn't, wouldn't recognize right. her. So I'm not going to recognize the Somerton man if I stumble on some old archival record of his real photo. I don't think I'm going to recognize him if I've got his dead photo imprinted in my brain. So I want to imprint the artistic reconstruction in my brain when I'm looking at old photos. I think that would be nearer than looking at his dead photo. Well, there's enough of a difference, and it's kind of frankly not surprising how many people may have positively or negatively misidentified this man whose appearance was changing significantly with each passing day. But you know what? I think also people kind of fill in the blanks here of their own memories. And as we all know now, you know, eyewitness testimony is is pretty faulty. You can convince somebody of something that didn't happen that they were a part of or implant false memories just by suggestion. So... 
That happens. But anyway, I think... Magicians do it all the time. Yeah, of course. Card tricks. Right. So, right. right, Forcing a card, it's called. But I think think what's happening here, though, is that anybody who may have glanced at this guy previously or thought that they knew who this guy was, well, he, he is changing significantly enough that... It's it's not spot on. Who knows, you know, who's misidentifying this guy and, and if they're right or not. You know, that's one of the things that I love about doing our show is seeing a big enough picture to be able to point something like this out. I mean, it's been mentioned in an ancillary way in the research, but you have to take a moment and reflect on that. You have one of the biggest John Doe mysteries of all time, and in the process of trying to preserve him to be identified, you're forced to do things to his body that significantly change what he looks like from day to day to the point where the people coming to identify him are looking essentially at an ever-changing face. It's meta-confounding. So in Feltus's book, he talks about a, a kind of macabre situation here when they were making the bus. For one thing, because he's been in the fridge for or close to frozen for six months, when they take him out for more than a little bit, condensation starts forming on him. So they have to wipe him down every few minutes with a towel. It took them, I think, two days to complete the bust as they were breaking it down into separate tasks like getting the ears, et cetera. And there was only so much they could do before he would have to go back in the fridge to keep from getting too warm. In fact, there was such an urgency to this that according to Professor Abbott, Cleland had wanted to keep the skull. He was apparently going to try to make a plaster facsimile of the skull and keep the real skull because at the time, I guess, they thought that there was some kind of information they could get from that later and Cleland apparently got really ticked off that he wasn't able to do that. The police said no, and, and, the, and the body was just buried. So, wow. Yeah. Well, it's uh, <laughs> kind of – Yeah, and, and, and in yeah. Feltus's book, Feltus said that he wanted brain tissue. But right. Abbott said that's actually a, a, a misprint or a typo. It was the skull that he wanted. Ah. Not for phrenology reasons where you're reading the bumps. I, I can't but. remember exactly yeah. what he said, <laughs> right. but it was something equivalent to that. I, you know, not phrenology, but something similar. Okay, so – but it, he wanted some kind of uh, I think it had to do with uh, – I, I no, I shouldn't speak out of turn. I'm okay, yeah, <laughs> All right. I don't know. It's like twenty angry emails. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want that. No. Okay, so what you're saying is Paul Lawson, aside from uh, doing the bust. Oh, by the way, you know that that captured some of his original hair stuck in the plaster, which I found very interesting. That's going to come up in a little bit. Actually. Okay, then. Yeah. Well, anyway, Paul Lawson is the man associated with all these specific notes about his kind of his athletic appearance, right? Yes, exactly. He was the one that made all the notes about what he looked like and his calves and all, which is a little bit strange since he was doing a bus. But hey, well, you know no, what? He's, a, he's a taxidermist. <laughs> yeah. He's used to, no, that, I'm serious. He's, well, he he's did used say to, that he had, yeah. he had done, for some other research, he had, I kid you not, it, yeah. it said somewhere that he had made a study of women's legs. <laughs> well, no, you know <laughs> what? He, by the way, he's yeah. still alive. All due respect to him. I, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm finding humor in this, but I, yeah. I'm not disparaging him in any way. No, uh, no. If we, we didn't have that bust, we would we would be in a much worse position with respect to this case. So. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a huge uh, thing left behind that at least you can study and look at. Uh, no, but it's like an artist. You, you, you study anatomy. Yes, exactly. The, the, the old masters used to go to uh, autopsies to study how the muscles laid underneath the skin. That's how you, that's how you find stuff. Well, and Benjamin Franklin, yeah. was it Franklin that was, or his brother? Yeah. I, I shouldn't say. This is something I learned on a pub crawl, and the right. memories are a little sure. vague. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> something Which, about the bodies, dead bodies under the floor, because they were practicing medicine. Oh, there was a lot of gruesome stuff going on, but yeah, that's how people London. found out. No, no. It's the, yes, the selling of, uh, of cadavers. Yes. Well, hey, who was plucking uh, cadavers out of Greyfriars? 
Remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, happening quite a bit. Anyway, yeah. that's... No, it doesn't surprise me that a taxidermist would know a lot about anatomy and uh, not only zoology, but uh, yes, you have to know these things because that's kind of your trade, much like Chuck Testa. Wow. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> a reference. Great, yeah, just go. Google Chuck Testa if okay. you want to know about that. Nice work. For nope. Uh, let's let's yeah. get back to the interview. Okay. Yeah, so the question is, how do you get a guy who's got this great physique, this sort of A-frame athletic physique, uh, what Paul Lawson called a wedge, we today say A-frame. Uh, do you say A-frame in, in America? It's not a term that's that? familiar to me, no. And neither is wedge, though. Uh, okay. But I knew exactly what Lawson meant when I watched that piece and he was talking about it. Do you have an equivalent American expression for that where somebody has broad shoulders going to a very, very thin waist? You know, it's it's generally just broad-shouldered is what people say in the States. Okay. But, um, okay. In Australia, we call that an A-frame. Um, but anywho, um, so, uh, you know, how do you get a physique like that and have such pronounced calf muscles that are high up on the calf, uh, which is what he noted how do you get that without any calluses on your hands or feet? Because um, this seems to be a guy that did no manual labor. So one of the things that was tossed around back in those days, um, in the late 40s and early 50s, was that maybe this guy was some kind of dancer um, or had a previous career in classical ballet dancing because that enhances your calf muscles and makes them go much higher up than uh, normal. And also is an explanation how you could get that kind of physique without any um, calluses on your hands or feet. And also his, there was, uh, it was written somewhere that his, his feet were sort of pointed as well, like that he might have worn ballet shoes? Or Yes, that's not really that significant. All Paul Lawson said about his feet was that his toes were basically slightly wedged, meaning that his big toe was leaning in slightly. All right, hold, hold on here a second. So what Professor Abbott is saying, that that was just a part of the changes to the body from the decomposition and the formalin, right? Not not uh, the dysmorphia of the toes I'm talking about specifically. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's what he's saying. But you, you have to remember that Peter Lawson was brought in to make the bust at the latest stage of the game. TSM had been dead and in the morgue for six months. So, you know, I'm not sure I would agree with this, but you have to look at the big picture of accepted facts. And, and, and you have to look at pet theories when you think about this, which we all have our own pet theories. It's the same thing as confirmation bias. It's a romantic idea to believe the pointed toes are that of a dancer, but it's not an observation that was made when he was first found. So yeah. as we've indicated, his body went through a lot of changes. And here's another point. Professor Abbott has actually spoken to Lawson in person about this, and he went a little farther than that. He's still alive, and I've, I've see, seen him a number of times, and I've showed him lots of photos of people's feet and asked him to pick out which is the closest to what he saw. And he picked out a picture that only showed a big toe slightly leaning in. So I don't think it's a big deal, and it's such a small deal that that, could be just the skin tightening because the dead body's been in a fridge for six months. So it might not be the actual condition of his feet uh, when he was alive. So I wouldn't put too much into that. One thing Paul was definitely 
adamant about is that because normally when you think of a big toe leaning in, you think of somebody with a bunion. He was adamant that the guy had no bunions. So he said it was actually quite a really nice foot, really. What about TSM's clothes? Okay, what about the connections to America? Well, there's a lot of interesting observations there. I actually want to play this part of the interview in its entirety. This whole question of whether there's any U.S. items. So, first of all, the police always recorded right from the beginning that the guy had an aluminum, or you say aluminum, comb in his pocket. And they recorded right from the very beginning that that is very unusual in Australia to have an aluminum comb, and this is more associated with American personnel. Because, you know, we had American troops here in Australia in the war, and so people were used to seeing those guys with aluminum combs. And they were quite rare for Australians to have those at the time. So I never thought anything of that when I saw that report. You know, I just assumed, hey, well, maybe this guy just got a secondhand comb from somewhere and there's nothing significant about that. But then when I started looking at the other information about the guy's possessions, it started building up a picture. Uh, So the other thing the cops did is they took the jacket the guy was wearing to a tailor and they said, can you tell us anything about this jacket? Because the manufacturer's label was torn out, so you couldn't see where it had come from. And so the tailor had a careful look at it, and he says, this has machined feather stitching of a type that we don't have here in Australia. We don't have machines here that do this. This had to have come from America, this jacket. So the local tailor determined that this was a U.S. jacket that he was wearing. So that's that's two U.S. items. Okay, so maybe not that significant. Then there's the fact he's got the Wrigley's chewing gum in his pocket. Now you could say, okay, it's because he's a smoker. He's trying to mask his breath. But then why has he got juicy fruit. Surely he should be having spearmint or peppermint uh, if he's that's what it's for. And usually a chewing gum habit wasn't really associated with Australian adults back in those days. It was more something Australian teenagers did. It would be more of a, an American thing to chew gum back in those days. So that that's an, another slight indicator. Was juicy fruit available in Australia? Uh, yes, apparently it was. Then we go to the tie, and this is something nobody noticed uh, about the tie. This is something that came up in my, my research a number of years ago. I was staring at the tie and noticed that the stripes go in the opposite direction to, say, my own ties that I have. And so I started looking up the history of ties and how, how it is, uh, why it is one way or the other. And I found that around the 1920s, the U.S. imported the tie fabric with the stripes from the U.K. and decided to cut the fabric in the opposite direction to where the the way the British did it, so the stripes come slanted the other way, so that you couldn't be accused of, say, copying the British, certain British club ties or whatever, and these would then be uniquely American. And so it just became an American tradition to usually cut the ties in the opposite direction to the British 
So it was a kind of an American thing. And when one looks at old ties of the time, back in the 40s, you can see that this is a general rule that holds back then. And if you look at old Thai advertisements and old newspapers and stuff, you can see that this is the case. But now if you look at ties today and the ties people wear, there's no hard cut rule anymore. People just buy their ties from anywhere now and you can get them from anywhere in the world on the internet. So when you look at the average US politician now, they could have their stripes going one way or another. I noticed Donald Trump always has his the British way for some reason. Yes. So he's not being very patriotic. Previous US presidents always had it the American way. When I was reading about the ties for this, uh, the very same reason, and, and based on what you had learned and also what you had said on the AMA on Reddit a year ago, I came across an article that was from a conservative source in the U.S. that was lambasting Obama for having his stripes going the wrong way. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people just latch on to whatever they can when it comes to... I've never seen a photo of Donald Trump with his ties going the American way. It's uh, very strange. Um, so somebody should lambast him. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a funny point. Yeah, that's interesting. In one of uh, Professor Abbott's articles, I believe it was maybe the Huffington Post one, he has a link to the Brooks Brothers website where they talk about the history of them reversing the stripes. So yeah. in, in, in for America, they start at the top right shoulder, which and the stripes go down to the left hip. And, yeah, we, uh, and for the Brits, it's yeah. uh, from heart to sore. Yeah, exactly. Just but, they um, have to we, be, yeah. we, of course, as you know, Americans, we don't have an expression. It's just <laughs> no, not just, the way that they had it. No, we have to put our own spin on it. But I think the Brooks Brothers, they called that the reptile due, due to the uh, – not reptile, the reptile, yes. R-E-P-P, which yes. is, is a misspelling – throughout the years, but it has to do with the tightly woven, I think, French silk cord, right? That's yeah, the type the of fabric, and like, like there's a raised part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the spin. But you know what's interesting is that clothing, major clue component, because it's one of the few things found on him. Well, you know what? Here's the other thing, the laundry mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what that is for our listeners? Back in the old days, and I'm not sure people do this now. I think they do it maybe with paper. Yeah, uh, that, paper that's stapled. Now. Yeah, but back in the old days, a lot more people because it was cheaper, you took a lot more of your clothes to the cleaners. And I think, you know, people don't have the washers and dryers they do now. So a lot of your, bit, you know, your your formal clothes, your business clothes, you would take that to the cleaners, they would wash and press them. And when when they did, when you turn them in, they would put like a, a little indelible mark on an, on, you know, like underneath a seam or something. Yes, in India, ink. Yeah. And so it, yeah. it was called a laundry mark. And each place had their own symbol. And sometimes it was letters with a number to identify not only their shop, but what customer number you were. Or it just could have a, a little symbol on it, like a horseshoe, I think, or a star or something. So anyway, these were unique identifiers to what dry cleaners you went to. That's right. And so TSM had five digit laundry marks. Inside the pocket lining of his pants. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let Professor Abbott explain. There's another potentially American thing. We, we're not completely sure, but um, this guy has a laundry mark in India ink. Well, three laundry marks on, in, in India ink on the inside of his pocket lining in his trousers. And these uh, are five digits long. That, that's a very long laundry number. And for small places in Australia, that's quite surprising. So that would be more believable if that was an American laundry mark. 
And so I, I tried to do some research, and you have a guy in America. He was a famous cop in New York called Adam Yulch, spelled Y-U-L-C-H. And he worked in a police station in Nassau. He made it his mission in life to collect any kind of laundry mark from all over the U.S. that he could get his hands on. I can forward you a few articles about this guy. So we've got, you've got a reference on him. That'd be great. And I'll, I'll share those with our listeners as well. If we could find this library and find its existence and find that there's other laundry marks with that number of digits and in that particular island configuration and then it's got the dot in the right place and things like that, that kind of nail a region of the USA. These numbers appear to be way too long for any small Australian city you'd Imagine this would be some big metropolis that uh, would have to have so many digits. And you don't think it's a, a, a UK, like London or something? It, it's so possible. Uh, though I have looked up some old references to laundry marks in London, and it seemed they weren't using five digits. So uh, okay. I'm just trying to find put this call out to your people. I'm looking for anywhere in the world that used five digits, okay. uh, America or not, you know, who, who uses five digits? <laughs> have you have you reached out to this police, the this police department now currently? Have you already contacted where he lived or found anything about him? Uh, yes, I have reached out and, you know, I just came against a bunch of dead ends. Okay. And any, did you have any luck maybe finding his descendants? Uh, no, I haven't been down that path. Okay. Well, we'll put, a, we'll put a call out to our listeners. And also, we have a group of researchers that volunteer for the show that are fairly well connected with the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian. And so we'll ask those guys. And if any of our listeners are listening right now and you can help us out with this, uh, that please, that would, be, that would be tremendous for Professor Abbott. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, so much like Charles Hoy Fort, of the father of all things Fortian, who kept a huge card catalog of just weird happenings, yeah. Lieutenant Adam Yolch, uh, not one of the Beastie Boys, that was, <laughs> that's yeah. been a running joke for the last couple of days with us, but uh, Lieutenant Yolch had a huge collection of these laundry marks, and he, I think, I think he cracked maybe over 150 cases, which led to finding the culprits, because once you find where they do their laundry all the time... You can go to the cleaners and say, like, hey, this guy, you know, any anybody suspicious that fits this description, yeah, he was able to solve not only a bunch of crimes through this technique, but also he foiled a, a German World War II plot for sabotage. Operation Pes- Pistorius. Pas- Pastorius, not Pistorius. Like Hold on. The Oscar? Guy shot his... <laughs> Girlfriend by mistake. Yeah, uh, that was well, a mistake. Well, there you go. No, Operation Pastorius, where four military intelligence soldiers trained in the arts of sabotage landed by rubber boat at Amagansett in New York, right? And yeah. uh, came ashore and were almost caught by a young Coast Guard uh, guard walking the, patrolling the well, beach. Well, they were caught. Well, I think he, I think they bribed him. Yeah, he was, <laughs> was a flake. A, well, <laughs> it, it's, yeah, some uh, fine Traitor German chocolates. Traitor to his country. Well, look, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. These guys speak English, by the way. It's not like they're Sergeant Schultz, yeah. uh, you know, walking up on the beach. Who knows what they told, but basically like, hey, kid, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a saw buck. Keep this under your hat. 
However, when they were ditching their clothes, they buried, I believe, a jacket, but not very well. So it was found. So Lieutenant Yolch, he became captain eventually, but at the time, Lieutenant Yolch was able to find the laundry mark on this jacket and nailed down where this one German saboteur was getting his clothes cleaned. Wow. So he helped crack that case. Yeah. No, they, that's the but thing. Did you they, say a couple of them were executed or something? I believe, yeah, I think there were uh, maybe eight German agents that were eventually found out in this ring. Six of them, I think, were executed because wow. they refused to cooperate. The guy that they found through the laundry mark, I think he started cooperating. That's how they they were able to round up the rest of the ring. Right. And these guys had enough knowledge and explosives to blow up a lot of industrial complexes that in Am- in and around Amagansett. Yeah. yeah, and uh, no, it would have been uh, it would have been huge because it was an operation put forth by the famous Admiral Canaris of the uh, the German Navy. There. What's interesting though is that this thing worked. It was a strange thing that he just kind of turned into a hobby. But what he would do is that he would take these cloth either cut out or they were cloth labels that were stapled yeah. or or these markings, and he would he would affix them to these cards and he kept this huge card catalog and he he organized it in different ways either by the letters or numbers or the types of fabrics i believe but i think by the late 40s he had five thousand of these entries and then it doubled and tripled so it was like file cabinet upon file cabinet of these markings and nobody knows where it is right now ah right i don't i don't know i mean this case keeps getting more and more fascinating there's so many leads to follow and so many things to track down You guys, I'm talking to you listeners, you guys excel at this kind of stuff. Our entire research core is made up of volunteers from the audience. We're reaching out to not only the Astonishing Research core, but any listener who can help with this. What do we know about these laundry marks? Can anyone find Detective Yelch's collection of laundry marks? Or I should say Captain Yelch. Also, who can figure this out? If you have any way to figure this out, whether you can find Yelch's collection or you have other ideas about how we can figure out where these laundry marks might have come from, email us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. Professor Abbott has sent us an email about the laundry mark since the interview, right? Uh, with, a, with a picture? Yes, he has. And the picture is actually posted with this episode. And here is the text of the email. This is an actual photo of the laundry marks found inside the man's trouser pocket lining. Notice they are five digits long, so it must have been a pretty big city, and everything is big in America. Can your listeners find out which U.S. cities had five-digit codes in the 1940s? Can they find if anywhere else in the English-speaking world had five digits? I've hit a dead end with this, and I need help. Also, what about the configuration? Four digits, a stroke, and a fifth digit. Can anyone find a location that used that format in the 40s? So that's a direct request from Professor Abbott there. And like we said, if you have any way to help us out with this, just email us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. Well, there you go. Our attempt at crowdsourcing. Yes. Well, so far we've we've had more success with that than I ever would have dreamed of when we started this show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's where we're going to break what I like to call part one of part two of the Summerton Man series. Or, Or maybe I'll call it part 2A. Whatever I call it. I promise to post the next part just as soon as I can get it edited, which I'm hoping will be in uh, maybe a week at the most. In that episode, we're going to hear more from Professor Abbott about things like the enigmatic nurse Jestin, the Tamam Should paper scrap, and Abbott's nine-year quest to break the code at the back of the matching copy of the Rubaiyat. We'll also be speaking to published poet and poetry expert Robert Crutt about the Rubaiyat itself and the significance of the various quatrains that have pertinence to this case. And finally, we'll end with some surprise information that adds a good deal of unexpected weight to Professor Abbott's quest 
to find the Somerton man's identity. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's episode. The second part of this one will be posted within a week. Stay tuned. And please visit our Patreon page. Our theme music was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps and our lead researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.